Let's pray now as we prepare to open the Word of God together. Father, in Psalm 130, verse 7, it says that hesed, loving kindness, steadfast love is with you, and with you is plentiful redemption. Lord, we are such a thankful people that you uh, engaged this cosmic rescue mission for us, for transgressors, for sinners, for people who were faithless, for people who were in bondage, Lord. You came and took initiative and rescued us by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and we are so thankful for your chesed, for your loving kindness. Lord God, it goes on forever. It is eternal, and we are a people full of praise to you. And we pray now, Lord, as we open your word, as we open what you have revealed to humanity, that, Lord God, your Holy Spirit would attend our hearts, teach us the truths that you would have be taught today to us. And, Lord God, may we not be the same after hearing your word today, but may we go out as people on mission, as people who love you and love our neighbor. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we have, of course, the very famous narrative of David and Goliath. So many of us know that story very well. Something that I have always found very instructive there, among many things in the chapter, is that in verse 37 of 1 Samuel 17, this verse comes prior to the great battle with Goliath. David says there, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So there we have David confessing his confidence that God is going to deliver him from Goliath's hand. David expresses faith in God there. David depends on God's power and God's protection. He trusts God for victory in that ensuing battle with the giant Goliath. And yet, only three verses later in verse 40, what do we find after all of that God-centeredness, that trust in God for victory? We find David doing something entirely practical. David goes to the brook and with discernment at work, David sifts through several stones there at the riverbed he discriminates amongst those stones, and David chooses five particular smooth so stones for the purpose of his impending battle with Goliath. Well, there's a great lesson here for us in the span of three verses. The lesson is that faith in God, verse 37 works itself out in very practical ways. Verse 40. Faith in God issues out in practical expressions. David trusts God completely for the victory and 
Simultaneous with his trust in God, David very practically chooses five smooth stones. If I have a broken leg, I pray that God will heal it, and I trust that God will heal it, but I go to the hospital, and I get the leg cast, and then I keep the weight off the leg. Faith issues in practical expressions. If my car battery dies, I pray God's help in finding a good deal on a new battery, but I don't sit there waiting for God to drop a new battery out of heaven into my car. I go to Canadian Tire and I look for deals. Faith in God issues out in practical expressions. This morning, in the story of Ruth, we arrive at chapter 3, and what we have here in the first several verses of the chapter is just that. We have faith in God working itself out in practical action. If we remember, Naomi had expressed a prayer over Ruth, over Ruth and Orpah, in fact, while they had been on the road uh, toward Judah in chapter 1. So in chapter 1, verse 9, Naomi had prayed over her two daughters-in-law, The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Naomi trusted God there, that God would give rest to Ruth and Orpah and give husbands to Ruth and Orpah. Well, now in Ruth chapter 3, we find the same person who had prayed that way is now scheming, planning, devising a way for Ruth to find rest and to find a husband. Faith here is working itself out in practical ways. We begin today at Ruth 3 verse 1. Ruth has been gleaning for about seven weeks in Boaz's field, and now Naomi strikes up a conversation with Ruth. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you. Again, as a reminder, back at 1.9, Naomi prayed that Yahweh would grant rest for Ruth. Now Naomi says, should I not seek rest for you, Ruth, my daughter-in-law? Should I not take initiative on your behalf, Ruth? Should I not try to get things moving along here? The word rest that Naomi uses here, rest, this word is described well by Daniel Block in his commentary on Ruth. Block says that when Na- what Naomi desires for Ruth here is this. When she, when she uses this word rest, she's desiring the security and tranquility that a woman in Israel longed for and expected to find in the home of a loving husband. Should I not seek rest 
for you? Should I not seek for you, Ruth, the security of having a husband to provide for you in our male-dominant society? Verse 2, Naomi continues. Naomi has drawn up a plan that she wants Ruth to undertake. Naomi says, Is not Boaz our relative? Of course, Boaz was less Ruth's relative and much more Naomi's. But Naomi says, Our relative as a way to show that Ruth is included in the family. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Boaz will be winnowing barley tonight. That is, Boaz will be out where the outcropping of rock is. He will be there with his fork tool, throwing the harvested straw, chaff, and grain up into the air, into the night breeze, so that the chaff will blow away and the heavier grain kernels will fall onto the smooth rock floor below to be gathered up. Tonight, Boaz will be there at that place where the season's harvest becomes actualized. Verse 3, Naomi continues to lay out her plan. She wants Ruth to perform a whole set of actions now. Listen to this. She says to Ruth, Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak... And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, of course, some have read this verse as Naomi encouraging Ruth to dress up seductively and perfume herself in order to go attract Boaz at nighttime on the threshing floor. I don't think that's quite what's happening here. In fact, I think there's good reason to reject that sort of interpretation. I want you to chew on this with me just for a moment or two here. The first three actions that Naomi recommends to Ruth in this verse, so that that Ruth wash herself, that Ruth anoint herself, that Ruth put on her cloak. All three of these in the Hebrew text, they involve Hebrew words that we also find in another single verse, in another place in the Old Testament, namely in 2 Samuel 12, verse 20, where, listen, following the death of David's child by Bathsheba, David then washes himself, he anoints himself, and he changes his cloak or his 
clothes, as it's translated here. And again, the three Hebrew words in that verse, in 2 Samuel, are the exact same three Hebrew words that we have in Ruth 3.3. Here's the point. In David's case, these three actions of washing, anointing with oil, and changing out his clothes are all done to signify that his time of mourning over his dead child was now over. I follow Daniel Block in arguing that when Naomi wants Ruth to wash, to anoint herself, and to change her cloak, it's for the same reason of showing that Ruth's time of mourning, the loss of her husband, was now over. And when Ruth would arrive in the presence of Boaz at the threshing floor with this change of appearance, it would signal to Boaz that Ruth had ended her mourning over her dead husband and that Ruth was now potentially available for remarriage. So in the end, I think Naomi's plan here It has a far more honorable tone to it than her simply wanting Ruth to appear seductive in order to seduce Boaz. Instead, Naomi wants Ruth to show by her appearance that her mourning has ended and that she is potentially available again for marriage. Well, notice at the end of verse 3, Notice this, that Naomi instructs Ruth to not make herself known to Boaz until Boaz has finished eating and drinking. It's worth remembering here that Ruth is a Moabite, right? Ruth is descended ultimately from Lot and Lot's eldest daughter. Lot's daughters, in that horrible scene in Genesis chapter 19, they had purposely made their father very drunk so that they could sleep with him and become pregnant by him, by their own father. Genesis 19 presents us with that very sordid, sleazy scene. Well, Ruth is a descendant of those people. And now here, in the time of the judges, Ruth will go to a man who has finished drinking, but will Ruth show herself to be like the mother of her people? Will Ruth show herself to be like that vile eldest daughter of Lot? Will Ruth sexually take advantage of a man who has just finished drinking? Well, I'm jumping ahead here, but Ruth, the Eshet Ha'il, the worthy woman, she will not be like 
Lot's eldest daughter. She will not. And indeed, Ruth, what is she going to do? She's going to essentially reverse the evil of Lot's eldest daughter. Ruth will act appropriately and modestly and very godly in this scene. Ruth will not do the typical Hollywood thing and have a one-night stand with Boaz. The scene is remarkable, remarkable for its godly restraint. Let's go to verse 4 of our passage. Here we have the last part now of Naomi's plan that she's laying out for Ruth. Naomi says to Ruth, But when Boaz lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, there are at least, at least, two questions that we may have as we read this verse. The first question is the more minor question. So notice here that Naomi is sure that Boaz will end up lying down or sleeping there at the threshing floor where he is working. The question is, why would Boaz sleep there? Why not go home to his own bed, to his own house after the hard work of threshing? And the answer is most likely that Boaz sleeps there at the threshing floor in order to guard what he has winnowed, to guard it from potential thieves who might try to steal the produce during the night, especially during this chaotic time of the judges. But then the second, perhaps more important question we may have as we read verse 4 is, what in the world is this business about Ruth uncovering Boaz's feet before she lies down beside him? Naomi says to Ruth, once you see where Boaz is lying, then go uncover his feet and lie down. Well, What's going on here? There have been some who have argued that the word feet in this verse is a euphemism for genitalia so that Naomi would then be encouraging Ruth to go uncover Boaz's genitals so that this scene then, under that interpretation, becomes incredibly sexually charged. But I see no compelling reason to go with that interpretation. In fact, there are good reasons that for the sake of time this morning, I won't detail here, but good reasons to take the phrase, uncover his feet, as uncover his feet. Or possibly, uncover his lower extremities. So it would mean uncover his feet along with his calves and his thighs, excluding his genitals. I'm convinced that this is 
It's simply about Ruth going to uncover Boaz's legs. And why does Naomi want this? Why does she want Ruth to uncover Boaz's legs? Because if you are sleeping in the night air with your legs covered up and somebody comes along and uncovers your legs, more than likely you're going to come too, right? You're going to wake up because your legs will start to feel cold. Naomi wants Boaz to wake up and to wake up with Ruth lying right there beside him. And at that moment, according to Naomi, Boaz will then tell Ruth what to do. Now, before we proceed further into the story, we pause here just to make a few comments. Even though we've argued here this morning that Ruth is not being asked to dress seductively, rather, she's being asked by Naomi to dress in a way that indicates that her time of mourning is over. Even though we've argued that, and even though we've just argued in verse 4 that the uncovering of Boaz's legs is probably not to be taken in a sort of sexually euphemistic way, Nevertheless, having said all of that, this plan of Naomi's is still very charged, if we can use that term. It is still very risky, and it is still a very sort of wow kind of a plan. Let's consider just a few things here so that we can get the... Ooh, the risk of this whole thing. First of all, during this time of the judges, prostitutes would often go out to the threshing floors at night to try to get some work from the men who would be sleeping there. So then, it would be entirely possible, would it not, that out there in the rural darkness, and it is dark if you go out into the country without any city lights, out there in that rural darkness, Boaz could interpret the sudden presence of a woman as the presence of a prostitute and being the worthy man that he was, Boaz would then chase Ruth off. That was a real possibility. So we can see the riskiness of Naomi's strategy here. It might all come to naught if Ruth were to be chased off, mistaken for a prostitute. And even if Boaz were to wake up and find Ruth there beside him and not interpret her as a prostitute, It could be that Boaz might simply find the whole scenario so bizarre that he would reject Ruth out of hand. There was the potential in Naomi's plan for great misunderstanding. There is a real risk here. But then, friends, I want you to listen. There are times, there are times 
when the practical movements of faith are risky. There are times when stepping out in faith involves vulnerability and involves the potential for misfire. Let's keep reading the story. Verse 5, I've always found quite amazing. Isn't it amazing? Ruth has just listened to Naomi's daring plan being laid out, and Ruth simply says to her mother-in-law, all that you say I will do. Wow. Of course, there'd been that earlier time back on the road toward Judah where Ruth had effectively said to Naomi, all that you say I will not do, I will not return to Moab as you are suggesting, my dear mother-in-law. But here, Ruth agrees fully to carry out Naomi's designs. Ruth will proactively, intentionally act out this risky step of faith that Naomi has devised. And then we get the scene change. Now Ruth goes. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. That's kind of a summary statement for what follows. How exactly did this play itself out? Verse 7, And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry. That is, when Boaz, after his hard work of tossing the harvest into the air, separating the grain kernels from the chaff, when he put down his pitchfork and when he'd eaten a good meal and had satisfied himself with drink, feeling serenely blessed of God for a good day's work, when he was in this blissful frame of mind, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then, presumably now after Boaz had drifted into a satisfied sleep, Ruth came softly and uncovered his feet. Discreetly, she uncovered his lower limbs and she lay down. And then, some time went by. Ruth, who had washed and anointed herself and had put her fresh cloak on, lay there silently at the feet of Boaz with Boaz's legs uncovered. Maybe Boaz is snoring away, satisfied in sleep, snoring away there for a while. But then we have the time marker in verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled. Now Boaz wakes up. And he turned over and behold, okay, we have that word behold. The camera now zooms down to his feet. 
a woman lay at his feet. There in the thick rural darkness, the startled Boaz looks down at his feet and he can make out in the dark the form of a woman lying there. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam had awakened from a deep sleep to find the woman Eve. Here Boaz awakens from sleep to find the form of a woman lying by his feet. As Sinclair Ferguson says, this woman at Boaz's feet is to become Boaz's Eve. In verse 9, the startled Boaz says, Who are you? Again, it is doubtful in this rural setting where there were no lights from the city that Boaz can see things clearly in the darkness. Who are you? Notice carefully that Boaz's first move here in this rather electric situation, his first move is to ask about the identity of the person who is at his feet. Boaz does not simply move to take advantage of the situation in any sort of sexual way. He asks, who are you? There is some real poise here in this godly man Boaz as he awakens to find himself alone with a woman in the dark at the threshing floor. Who are you? And then we get Ruth's answer. She replies to Boaz, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, we've already mentioned this morning Listen, we've already mentioned that Naomi's whole strategic plan in this passage, her whole strategic plan involves her acting on the prayer blessing that she had prayed back in 1.9 where she had prayed that Yahweh would find rest for Ruth. Then Naomi acts on that. Well, in a similar way, here at 3.9, when Ruth says to Boaz, spread your wings over me, Boaz, spread your garment over me, what Ruth is saying, in essence, is, Boaz, you fulfill the prayer language that you had used back at 2.12, where you had asked Yahweh to repay me and reward me, Yahweh under whose wings I had come to take refuge. Now, you, Boaz, you give me refuge under your wings. Just in passing here, it's interesting, isn't it, that back in verse 4, Naomi had instructed Ruth to let Boaz tell Ruth what to do. But here in verse 9, Ruth tells Boaz what to do. She tells Boaz to spread your wings over your servant. But track with me here. What is really beautiful in, here in this verse is that the word 
wings, which in many other English versions is translated here in 3.9. You may have something like robe in your Bible or covering or cloak. This Hebrew word here in 3.9 is, is the same word that Boaz had used at 2.12 when Boaz had mentioned Ruth taking refuge under Yahweh's wings. Now Ruth asks Boaz to cover her with his wings, with his robe, with his garment. Ruth asks Boaz to make good on his own blessing language from 2.12. And in asking this of Boaz, Ruth is really asking him to marry her. Listen. For both Ruth and Boaz to be covered there at the threshing floor with the single garment of Boaz, this would be a symbol of the one flesh mystery of marriage. Further, we know that Ruth's request here is tantamount to saying, marry me, Boaz, because over in Ezekiel 16, 8, God talks there about spreading his garment over Israel and making covenant vows to Israel in what really amounts to a marriage ceremony between Israel, the bride, and her covenant husband, Yahweh, God of Israel. In Ezekiel 16:8, God is addressing the nation of Israel, and he says, listen to what he says, When I passed by you again, Israel, and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I did what? I spread the corner of my garment, the, the corner of my wing over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So this spreading of the wings, spreading of the garment that Ruth asks of Boaz, this is like saying, Marry me, Boaz. And indeed, this is precisely the way that the Good News Bible has translated, uh, decided to translate here at 3.9. The Good News Bible has Ruth saying to Boaz, please marry me. And again, this is a bold, courageous, risky move for Ruth to make here, is it not? A young Moabite woman asking an older Israelite man to marry her. A lowly foreign servant asking her benefactor to marry her. Certainly, there was the possibility that Boaz might simply reject this proposal out of hand in an immediate sort of way and perhaps even a harsh way. So again, this is a very bold move on the part of Ruth. As Christopher Ashe has called it here, he's called Ruth's request here the most daring expression of faith in the whole book. The most daring expression of faith in the whole book. And notice finally, in verse 9, 
What does Ruth do? She provides the grounds, the reason why Boaz should marry her. She says that the marriage should happen because or for you, Boaz, are a redeemer. In Hebrew, it's literally, a redeemer are you. This is the reason why the marriage should happen, says Ruth, because you, Boaz, you are a redeemer. What we then discern here is that Ruth is not in this for the money. Ruth was not wanting this marriage for any sort of self-gratuitous reasons. Her stated reason here that Boaz should marry her is that Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. In other words, Ruth is saying, if you and I marry Boaz, then rescue can happen for my mother-in-law Naomi. And should the Lord grant us a son then the name of my deceased father-in-law, Elimelech, will continue. So not only is Ruth's request bold here, as we have observed, Ruth's request here is also full, we need to notice, full of chesed for Naomi. It is full of selfless concern For Naomi, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Boaz, you can redeem, by marrying me, you can redeem Naomi from her dire situation. Well, we have to wait until next Sunday to journey together through Boaz's response to this proposal. For now, as we end today... I invite you once again just to hold this picture at the threshing floor in your mind's eye. Ruth the Moabite lies there at the feet of Boaz. Ruth from a nation outside of Israel. And she asks this Israelite to cover her with his wing to protect her, to enter into a marriage covenant with her. We know that from this couple, from Ruth and Boaz, David will descend just a few generations hence. And in David's line will come none other than Jesus Christ. Shortly before Jesus was put to death on the cross, We find him lamenting over Jerusalem. And in that lament, Jesus expressed his heart's desire. His heart's desire, which was to gather the people of Jerusalem, as he says, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But the people of Jerusalem had been unwilling to come under the compassion, the protection, the chesed of his wings. A little later, Jesus went to the cross. 
And there his blood flowed and his body was broken so that believing Jews and believing Gentiles like you and I could find refuge under God's wings. Refuge from the wrath of God that had to come upon our sin. For the believer, God's wrath was taken, wasn't it? Was taken by our substitute, by our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. As believing Gentiles who have trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, Gentiles like Ruth, who come from the nations, we hide under His Wings. We hide there under the wings of the crucified, risen descendant of that couple on the threshing floor. We hide under the saving wings of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, our Lord, our Redeemer, our Savior. My friend, I want to ask you, if you're watching today, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know this Redeemer of whom we speak today? You're watching this YouTube video right now. You've come this far with us through the sermon. Thank you for that. Today we have talked about, haven't we? We've talked about the risks of faith that Naomi and Ruth were willing to take, how these two women stepped out in bold faith. Well, what about you today? Are you willing right now to step out in faith and say to Jesus, spread your wings over me, Jesus, for you are my Redeemer. Spread your wings over me, Jesus, because it's only by your shed blood that I can be made right with God. You are my Redeemer, and I trust you as my Redeemer. Well, as you do that today, as you receive Jesus as your Savior, your Lord, your Redeemer, and your Protector, you are going to find that He embraces you, my friend. He embraces you. He will not turn you away. He is good. And he is a great redeemer. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you for this gem of a book that you have inspired in your word. For all that you are teaching us through it. Uh, for the fact that you are softening our hearts through it. Transforming us ever further into the image of your son, Jesus Christ chipping away at the calcified parts of us, the hard parts of us, the sinful parts of us. We thank you for your work in us, Lord, and we pray that as a church, we would be a church that, are, we, that all of us would be beacons of your hesed, your loving kindness, in a world that increasingly is turning dark. We pray this in the power and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hello and welcome back to this, now the 8th uh, episode of a special 12-episode 
series on the Book of Ruth uh, in conjunction with the sermon series that we're currently doing at Snowden. Yesterday, during the sermon time, we were in uh, the first part of Ruth chapter 3, which is the initial part of the scene where Boaz and Ruth meet together on the threshing floor. Today, what I thought we would do is just explore a little bit some very interesting parallels, I think, between this scene in Ruth 3 and another scene in 1 Samuel. And then toward the end, we'll talk a little bit about why these parallels may be significant. And just to give credit where credit is due, uh, today I am indebted to Gregory Goswell and Peter Lau, who wrote a book called Unceasing Kindness, which is an exploration of the book of Ruth. I'm indebted to them for pointing out the parallels that we're about to look at. So, as mentioned, uh, the scene in 1 Samuel that bears more than a few parallels to the scene in Ruth 3 that we were looking at yesterday uh, is found in 1 Samuel chapter 25, and it's the scene where Abigail goes out onto the road to meet a rather hot-headed David, who at that moment is on his way to kill Nabal. In Ruth chapter 3, we have Ruth calling herself, identifying herself as Boaz's ama in Hebrew, uh, Boaz's servant or maidservant. She says in verse 9, I am Ruth, your ama, your servant. Likewise, we have Abigail in 1 Samuel 25 uh, using that same term, ama, and using it repeatedly. For example, in verse 24, uh, Abigail says to David, uh, please let your Amma, your servant, speak and hear the words of your Amma, your servant. And we have the same word coming out of Abigail's mouth, as I said repeatedly in the passage in verse 25, verse 28, and again in verse 31. Another parallel, uh, both Ruth and Abigail are situated at the feet of the respective men that they are talking to. Uh, of course, in Ruth's case, she is lying at the feet of Boaz, there at the threshing floor. In 1 Samuel, Samuel 25, verse 24, um, it says that Abigail fell at the feet of David as she began uh, to speak to him. Also, of course, uh, we know that both of these women, Ruth and Abigail, ended up marrying the respective men that they're talking to. So Ruth ends up marrying Boaz and Abigail ends up marrying David. Further, both Boaz and David will end up uh, pronouncing blessing over these two women that they are speaking with. So uh, Boaz ends up uh, pronouncing a blessing over Ruth in Ruth 3.10, and David ends up pronouncing a blessing over Abigail in 1 Samuel 25.33. So there are these interesting parallels uh, between Ruth 3 and 1 Samuel 25. Um, we have two different women in those scenes living in different times, talking to two different men. But here's where the parallel comes together. To borrow from Lau and Goswell in their book, they say that both of these women, by their courage and by their resourcefulness, end up playing huge roles in making the house of David possible. Ruth, of course, because after she marries Boaz, they have a son together named Obed, which by the way means servant. And Obed, of course, is an ancestor of David. 
And then Abigail also plays a huge role because there on the road, she talks wisdom into David, in, in effect saving him from blood guilt, which would have, if, if he would have gone ahead and killed Nabal, it would have put his kingdom in jeopardy, basically before the kingdom ever got off the ground. So I think we can be quite thankful to God that he raised up both Ruth and Abigail um, without the shrewdness and the wisdom of these two women. We would have no lineage that takes us from Obed to David to Jesus our Lord, in the case of Ruth, and in the case of Abigail, we may not have a, a Davidic kingdom at all without her wisdom there on the road. So have a super week, be blessed in Christ, and Lord willing, we'll see you back here next Monday. Mm -hmm.